You're listening to the Better Man Podcast, becoming life-giving men together. Father and son relationship, for good or bad, it shapes who we are and our understanding of our masculinity. Today, we're joined by Bart Millard, lead singer of Mercy Me and songwriter of I Can Only Imagine. And the movie, I Can Only Imagine, was based on his life and the life of his father. He's here to talk to us today about the father wound, today on the Better Man Podcast. All right, so Robert, we are back here to talk a little about being a better man, and we've got a special guest today. We sure do, and Bart, it's great to have you join with us uh, with your busy schedule to talk about uh, what we know is to be one of the biggest issues that men deal with in their lives, and that is their relationship with their dads. Yeah, man, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, Bart, uh, thank you for, uh, I understand that you were getting ready to write a hit song today and you decided to step out of the studio <laughs> to do this for yeah, us. It's true. I uh, hope it I comes owed, back to you. <laughs> I, yeah, I owed Mark a lot of money, so I had to do this one. <laughs> That's right, you do. And uh, it's, the, imp, the interest is compounding. No. Yes, oh gosh, that's not good. <laughs> I would rather be your friend than your business partner, Bart. <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> well, I uh, I love the fact that uh, your life story has really been an inspiration to so many people. And if you haven't seen, I can only imagine it's really not just the story of I can only imagine the song and the band, but really the the story of of Bart's father and how Jesus made a change in his life. Uh, Bart, for those who maybe haven't seen the the movie, or you know, obviously movies are dramatic uh, retellings. Tell us a little bit about just the relationship with your father growing up and how that impacted you? Well, um, my, uh, my parents divorced when I was three. And um, for whatever reason, someone uh, decided that um, I, I grew up in Greenville, Texas. And, and my, we lived my mom at the, when we divorced at first for a few years. And then she remarried and, uh, my stepdad got transferred to San Antonio, which is about six or six hours away or whatever. And so they decided, I have a brother that's five years older. They decided to not take us out of school and move us to San Antonio because I, I don't know. I don't, I, you know, people, my mom had been married once before. It's her second marriage already. And, and people were like, man, you know, if this doesn't work out, you're going to uproot them and take them and then come back. And so they're like, just figure things out and let them stay with their dad. And so, and so from about probably eight years old on, I lived, I lived, my brother and I lived with my dad and my dad had a really bad temper, um, was, um, was abuse, emotionally abusive up until a certain age. Like he never, he spanked me and stuff, but never, it never really got bad until I got a little bit older. Uh, well, I say older, like, you know, 11 or 12 or something like that. And, um, and just got really abusive. And so it was, a. I I lived most of my childhood was, you know, steering clear of the house and hoping that not knowing which dad was going to show up from work if he was in a bad mood or, you know, or whatever. And so it's just walking on eggshells. My, you know, most of my childhood, uh, my, um, it's, it's my, my, my family has a church background. My grandfather started a Baptist church. My grandmother was the treasurer of the church. My dad and my and my uncle were the deacons before I was born. My mom and her twin sister were the piano and organ player, all the same church. And then when the divorce happened, my dad just kind of, he just kind of gave up on church, except for we had to go on Easter just to look good, I guess. And uh, 
So church wasn't a huge part of my life unless either the literally the church bus would come pick me up or my grandmother would take me. And um, and so, um, you know, I was that kid, that kid that always kind of just showed up and, you know, and hadn't had a bath for a while and clothes are all messed up and just kind of, and I, you know, I was, I was, I think I was a project for our church is what it felt like most of my childhood, but, uh, but church saved my life. And, and, um, anyway, so yeah, my dad was my dad, if he wasn't being abusive, he was just kind of non-existent, didn't really care about what I did. And, uh, so from about seventh grade on, I was on, I could do anything I wanted to, like I'd stay at my friend's house for three or four days in seventh grade and never tell him where I was and he didn't care. And, uh, and so kind of in a way been on my own a little bit since seventh grade, so to speak. I mean, now that I'm a parent, it's nuts that I ever did that at that age. I have those kids that age and that freaks me out thinking that, and how do you not have a father in your life? Like, how do you make it? So, so yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Like it wasn't the funnest, funnest childhood. That's for sure. So Bart, how did you find stability for your life? I know you, I know you were going to church, but what, what was that, uh, in those years that uh, spiritually and socially and emotionally it gave you some stability to make it through that time? Um, my, um, when I was, before I got into like youth group, my only stability would be my grandparents or my grandmothers. Sorry, I didn't, my grandfather had passed on, but my, uh, my mom's mom was the godliest woman I've ever known. And then my dad's mom, was the funniest and, and like, and was there, like I, they, we all lived a couple minutes from each other, but I would, I would stay with my dad's mom. I, uh, you know, every day after school, I'd go with, go be with her sometimes end up sleeping there. Sometimes, you know, whenever dad decided to come get me, they were like, they were the stability. Absolutely. No question. Uh, you know, and one just literally providing and taking care of care of me. And the other one just was everything just showing me how, Jesus is important and spiritually just, you know, she got run through the ringer. My grandfather that started church was a Baptist preacher, left her for a church secretary. And, and before a year before I was born and, and she never remarried because she kept saying that a prodigal would come home. And I'll never forget when, when, uh, when Papa died, which was about, uh, 1999 or something like that, I had to go tell my mom that he had passed away. And, and my cousin went and she, she's confined to a wheelchair, cataract, can't really see. And we walked in and, and we were like, my mom, she was like, uh, Lloyd died, didn't he? And we just kind of started crying like, wow, because she's and she kind of reached out for our hand and said, you know, you listen to me. And this is the only thing I've ever heard her talk. Every, I've never heard her talk about Papa. She said, there's only two men that I've just deeply, deeply loved in my life. The first is, is your Papa and the, the other is Jesus. She goes, I'm way better the first leaving me than the second. And wow. that's that's all she ever said about it. And then wow. she took a deep breath and said, well, I guess I'm too old to start dating now and kind of giggled about it. And that was it. <laughs> and, uh, and that's how she was from the, my entire life. As long yeah. as I knew her, like she was a rock and, and uh, the most gracious, uh, you know, amazing person I've ever known. Yeah. And every kid needs that kind of stability from someone. And oh, absolutely. Uh, God graced you with a special someone. Yeah, no question. All right. Tell us a little bit about just, you know, you, you talked a little bit about being embarrassed, feeling like you were the project uh, of the church. What are some other ways that your father just, you know, that abuse? How did that? How did that impact you as a person as you matured and grew up? And there's a lot of things embarrassing, like growing up that way. Like, um, 
um, and some things that, um, you know, that are borderline unbelievable, like, cause you just kind of take it for granted as a parent, I take for granted the things that you have to teach your children. You just assume that they know. And like, uh, like I was never taught, which is crazy to think, but I was never taught or understood why I was supposed to brush my teeth while I was a freshman in high school. Like, uh, no one ever stopped me at a young age and said, it's time to go to bed, brush your teeth. Cause, because like everybody was just, my mom was gone. My, my dad just, it just, it would never cross his mind. Like, I don't even know how I know how to tie my shoes today. Cause no one taught me to do this stuff. And, um, it wasn't until I was a parent that I realized like just try teaching my kids going, how did I, and realizing that I remember like it was in school, maybe it was like eighth grade, it was in school and they're doing the whole plaque test and, te- and that's kind of dental hygiene. I was like, what is happening? I don't know anything about this and crazy. And just, so there's things like that, that like, um, spending a lot of my life pretending that I know what's going on because no one stopped to tell me. Um, and, and so it was more of an, the, you know, internally I was always embarrassed, but I, that's we, I probably why I became a really funny guy because most comics are heartbroken somewhere in there. And I just, I, I, I masked it with humor my whole life and, and just, uh, you know, the sleight of hand, if I can keep this going over here, they're not going to see this over here. And, and, um, and so, yeah, it's, so it's, a lot of my just not knowing was an embarrassment of just basic stuff. And, um, and then, you know, and, um, just the, the fear of, I remember no, never, I never had people spend the night at my house. I would never bring people to my house cause I didn't know what my dad would do or what, it, what, you know, I, just who, which, which dad I would have. And so my wife, Shannon, who was my first girlfriend, like in seventh grade, she knew my dad on stuff. She's like, man, we never, it's like your house is like a, a cave that no one was allowed to go in. Like she never literally came into my house. The first time she ever walked in my house was after my dad died and people came over my freshman year in college. Like she never come to my house before then. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, yes, it was, a uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how much I knew. There were things that definitely embarrassed me for the most part. It's all I kind of knew. And so I tried to make the best of it. Um, it wouldn't be until I could see like, what a real family might look like a family that's together or, you know, realizing that, man, my clothes, you know, like I got new clothes. My dad realized that they were, I outgrew them like by a mile. It wasn't like, Oh, it's time to go shopping. And so those were the embarrassing moments when it's like, Oh, my shoes aren't supposed to have holes in them or my, my ankles should be covered by my pants. They're too, they're, they're too high, you know, stuff like that. It was always after the fact, like, Oh no, I do not look like everyone else here. So, uh-huh. so yeah, that was tough. Bart, I I, uh, I can uh, imagine that there are a number of listeners who have grown up with dads who were n- maybe not to the extreme of your dad, but were neglectful, were absent, and as you're speaking, can feel that same kind of embarrassment. I was just sitting here thinking, because my dad was chronic alcoholic. He wasn't really involved. He was at home. And he, I wouldn't say he was abusive. He was just very passive. But I called him the invisible dad. But because of that, yeah. I had those same kind of moments. And uh, as you were talking, I just, it was just interesting. I just relived again uh, that moment in junior high as a seventh grader when the coach had us all sitting up in the stands in August and was talking to us about getting some uh, different kinds of equipment, our socks and stuff like that. And he mentioned getting an athletic supporter. And uh, went on, and when he was finished, he said, any questions? 
And I was the I was the kid who raised his hand and said, "What's an athletic supporter?" Yeah. And then was ridiculed, right? Uh, oh, yeah. Because of that, embarrassed, and I just remember how the shame I felt, and I didn't know what to do with it except turn it in on myself and just feel terrible. But it's just interesting is I can still feel that. And uh, I know there's a lot of guys listening as you're talking going, yeah, I, I had the same kind of embarrassment because I didn't feel competent because nobody helped me feel competent for life. And uh, that led to all kinds of, you know, maybe as I got older to overreactions uh, because I didn't have that grandmother you had. So I chose something else. Maybe that was more sinister that then impacted me for years to come. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel you on that, man. Like, uh, you know, you saying that I realized, yeah, probably the most embarrassing moments for me were, you know, every once in a while they would have this kind of, Hey, we're doing this. It wasn't boy scouts, but it was, it was a Royal ambassadors, RAs growing up. And, you know, it'd be the dad and the son. We're going to go camping or whatever. And every time it would be another parent going, Hey buddy, you can come with us. And so I was always the kid that tagged along with another father and his son. And just, and just the, just the, I mean, like to where I stopped going because that was like a knife in my chest to, to set with the Joneses and try to act like I'm a part of their family. And even to where the dad's supposed to write a letter to your son about, he feels about you that this guy was so gracious to write me another, a letter along with his sons to read to me. And it's like, I don't know what he said. I wept the whole time because it wasn't my dad. It was, I'm sure he was a really nice guy. And what he said was sweet, but it was just the, the humiliation of this man who I barely know. I'm friends with his son is having to say these nice things about me because we don't want to leave Bart out. And that's like, that's stuff that at 47 is like a, a gaping wound and Steven talking about it. And, uh, cause it's, you know, that's, you know, you, <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll be maintaining that one for a long yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that hangs in the heart for a long time. Yeah. So, so yeah. Bart, what was the, what was the breakthrough? Tell our listeners, what was the breakthrough with you and your dad? I know he had a spiritual breakthrough, but how did you guys begin to close that gap? Um, the, um, I mean, it was definitely a process, but there, I could probably, there's definitely a moment that, that, that sticks with me. My dad was diagnosed with uh, pancreatic cancer when I was a, about to be a freshman in high school. And, um, and I remember them telling us like in the middle of this exploratory surgery, Hey, we found something. If it's where we think it is, he may have seven to 10 years to live. if He's lucky. And if it's not where we think it is, he could have three months to live. We'll be back in like three or four hours. <laughs> and, and so the, you know, the weird as a, you know, almost ninth grader, you go from, Oh my gosh, he has cancer to now I'm praying that it's the better cancer, you know, and it's, and it's this weird kind of head trip and not to mention my dad was not a great person. So I struggled with maybe he'll get the three months, you know, like, um, and that's, that's kind of how bad it was at times. And, um, and so when they finally came out and said, Hey, it's, you know, it's the, it's, he's got, it, it, we hope seven to 10 years, whatever it's the, the better, whatever spot. And so we went home and, and, um, you know, not much change of the, he was just, he was in pain from the surgery. And, and so, uh, and so I kind of, my brother moved, went to college and I was in seventh grade. So he came around for a little bit, but it was just me and him, um, uh, for, for those first couple of years he was diagnosed. And um, I'll never forget, like, he was he was quiet. He obviously wasn't in a place to be physically abusive because 
just his health, just recovering from surgery. So kind of got a break from that. And, uh, and it was me kind of going, Hey, do you need something? I had to help take care of him as much as I could. And, and, um, he wouldn't talk much. He was kind of like just a bear just laying there, like, you know, fine, you know, whatever. And then there was a moment and I didn't know this till later where, uh, he asked the doctor, when it happens, what is it going to look like? Like when I'm, it's my time. What do you, what am I dealing with? And, uh, and they, they basically, I guess they told him like, you know, it's you're, 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 it'll, it'll feel like this and this and you're, you're you know, it told him all this kind of stuff. And so about a, a few weeks after he got home, a lot of these symptoms started taking place. So he started getting really cold and shaking and got super weak and couldn't stop coughing. And, and I remember him calling me in and basically telling me, I, I, you know, call the ambulance. This is it. And it was one of the first times I saw my dad cry. And then all of a sudden he just, his mouth opened and he dumped on me 40 years of stuff. He's been wanting to say to me is what it felt like, like wouldn't stop. And like, you know, and like, uh, you know, I've loved you from day one. I'm, I'm the worst father ever. I never could tell you, but you know, it, it got to a point to where just staying away from you is better than being near you. Cause I, you know, just cause I was afraid it was going to hurt you. And you know, you're a beautiful kid and just all this stuff. And it was like, it was just on overload. And, I remember sitting there like, oh my gosh. And like, this is, in fact, him saying that I realized he is dying because there's no way he's saying this. Otherwise, my father's dying right now. The ambulance comes and gets him. And the things he said were so beautiful. In fact, there's a side note in the movie, the way my dad actually died years later, uh, I asked him to not use cause I just, it's dear to me. And, uh, and so the conversation in the movie right before he dies was basically this conversation. And I kind of asked them, Hey, can we just use that? Cause I, cause the way he died, I just don't, I just, that's just kind of, that's mine. And they were totally cool. So that conversation was stuff he was saying, like, go chase your dreams and all this kind of stuff. And anyway, and so ambulance comes and gets him, they take him off or I jump in with him. We get there. He has the flu. That's all it was. Like they didn't, nobody met, failed, they failed to mention that. Oh, by the way, it's the same thing the flu looks like. And so we had this, <laughs> and so we had this moment of me, uh, us driving home. Uh, I think, I think my grandmother drove us home and like, it was the most awkward, like, like the movie almost famous when the plane's going down and then it levels out. They're all like, confessing oh, their, yes. they're confessing <laughs> totally. their loves and their sins <laughs> yes. to one yes. another. Yeah, so now it's we're like looking out the window, like hey, how about the cowboys. Where do you go from here? <laughs> right, and so then it became. But then, like he 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 let me have a peek in, and that's all I needed. And so I just like started chipping away, like, hey man, when you said this, and he was like, oh gosh, you know, and and so, and it just and it it you wanted it, more. Yeah, I was like, I didn't even think, I didn't know that you felt. I thought you had batteries. Like, what's happening? You know, and. And, and that's what, you know, you just, as a kid, you pry hard enough. He's going to say something like, yes, that's what I meant. Leave me alone or whatever. And, and just over time, it became kind of a joke. Like, uh, it wasn't, it was annoying at first for him, but then it was just like, I, I pried so much that it's almost like he looked forward to it. And it was just kind of this, you know, Bart's going to have another 20 questions today. And, and, and it's kind of a joke that stayed with us until the end. And, and, um, and, it, I think one of the nights I had to go in and check on him and he never wanted to go to the hospital. And when I went and checked on him and he fell asleep and he fell asleep with his, with the word, the Bible on his chest opened up and I had never seen that. And, uh, 
realized by some of the markings that he was kind of reading through the whole thing and was like, whoa, what's happening? And, and I, you know, at this point I'm in youth group and, you know, and I'm like the holier now kid, like I'm like on fire, charging hell, the water pistol kind of thing. I'm all in. And so we, we'd have conversations and, and, you know, and that's the, and those were the, that was the seat. That was the years where it's like, man, like, uh, we just, we had a really amazing bond in those last three years of his life. He got to a point to where he would have to have an, well, probably the last two years, my junior, senior year in high school, he was kind of confined to an IV for most of the time. And he had this medicine. I don't know if it was, I can't remember what it was, maybe chemo, I don't know, but it was a, it was a medicine that had to be pushed through his IV and it was so thick. It would take about two to three hours to push it all the way through. And you had to man it and make sure it went there. And it would be every night in the middle of the night. Well, we, he had a, we had a, a hot, I guess, I guess a hospice nurse or nurse that would come in and help at night. And this nurse was killed in a car accident and it emotionally tore my dad up because he was like another son to him really close. If you have a tendency to get intimate when you're giving a man a shot for three hours from midnight to three every night and just, you get, you get to know each other. And, and so when that happened, my dad was like, I can't do that again, man. That, I feel like it took years off his life. And and so the day nurse, who was a friend of the family, I went to high school with her daughter. She said, I'm going to lose my license if they catch me. But Bart, I'm going to show you how to do the night and just say that he doesn't need anybody. And so my junior and senior year, I learned how to give my dad that shot every night, three hours a night um, for two, for literally two years. And so that would be where I, I, I knew I knew my dad more than probably anybody that ever walked the planet in those two years of us talking three hours every night when I'm a eight, 17 year old who doesn't, you know, teenagers don't want to talk at that point. And, and I would stop what I'm doing and, and go home and make sure I was there. And, and we just, we would chat from everything from what happens after he's gone to why I shouldn't be dating so-and-so and everything in between. And, and those were the, you know, I, I mean, obviously I appreciate it so much now. I don't realize how big of a deal it was then, but those are the years where it's like, gosh, like when he died, like I'd go, I would still go into his room at midnight and just like, I didn't know what else to do. Like it was just a knee jerk reaction. It's time to give his medicine. And I would just go in there and sit for, for months after he died. Cause it, it's what I did, you know? And uh, so those were the years where it's like, I knew my dad inside and out. And every, every boy wants his dad's heart. And yeah. uh, you finally got your dad's heart, which is the greatest gift. And uh, boy, that, that's just, that's thrilling to hear how God orchestrated that. What, what would you say, what would you say to our listeners out there, Bart, who feel like they have a fractured relationship with their dad? Is there anything you could say to encourage them in having the courage to take steps to move towards their dad? Well, I don't, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, the one thing I would say that was encouraging to me that I realized when I was just in the last couple of years is um, that there's, um, you know, no matter what my dad did or could have done, um, there was nothing too big for Jesus. I know it sounds cliche, but it's like, um, 
it was it, it, as impossible as things sounded. And I don't even mean that as far as just my dad having, re, you know, there being redemption. I meet people all the time that go, man, I had the same story, but sadly mine didn't turn out the way yours did. I'm like, you know what? God's bigger than that. Mm. He's absolutely bigger than that. Is that you're and and what I tell people daily is that, you know, the journey, the journey may have stunk a lot of times, but you're exactly where you're supposed to be. And, um, and, and quite possibly to try to live your life to believing that you may be, he may be raising you up for right now. Mm. And, and it's like, there's so much, you know, people are like, would you change anything? It's like, well, no, I mean, you know, I would, I'd like to, you know, not be so overweight, but other than that, like, <laughs> love where I am. I love who's in my life. And I, I, you know, it was hard getting here, but if there was a risk of anything changing now, because something was made better then, I'll pass because I, I have so much in my life that I I'm grateful for. And, and so the one thing that was encouraging to me was I do a men's group um, here and, um, and it's a group of men that um, you learn really fast when you're in a normal Bible study after about the third or fourth person asks for a photo or autograph, you're like, you know, I don't think I'm going to share my deepest, darkest secrets with this group. It's fun. But, and so our pastor, we started a group of guys that are kind of in different ways, kind of in the spotlight or just, you know, it, it, it would be equivalent to when pastors get together to talk about what pastors talk about yeah. because they can't do it with their congregation. You yeah. get that. Yeah. So it's like me and like Barry Zito, the pitcher and R.A. Dickey and, and and the guys from King and Country, and it's all these guys, and we all get together. So the first time I went, they're talking about father son stuff. And they're like going around the the we're in a fire pit, going around, going, man, tell me about your, your your relationship with your dad. And I'm sitting there going, oh, I if there's a, if there's a trophy, I'm getting it. I'm killing this one, man. No <laughs> one's gonna beat me on the on the bad dad story. <laughs> and so I, I think it was Barry Zito. I don't know if it's Barry or somebody, but they start talking about how they're their dads are the greatest heroes in their life. They've been best friends since the kid was born. And man, it's, I talk to him every day. It was like the opposite. I'm going, Oh, great. You know? And, but what's crazy is, is that he keeps talking and eventually he was like, yeah. And then I went to therapy because I had to figure out how to get out from the shadow of my amazing father. And I was like, wait a minute, time out for the first time in my life. I realized dang, if you do dang, if you don't like, it's not even about how abusive or amazing they are. It becomes about me figuring out who I am as a man and who I am, uh, you know, cause you know, Mark would be a great example. I don't know many people have a relationship like Mark does with his dad, an amazing relationship, but sometimes you don't realize the shadow that is casted from a, an, an amazing godly man. It's like, man, sometimes it's hard to live up to that where my situation is completely opposite, but here we are paying for the same therapy. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Trying to figure out who we are and what our identity is when we stand on our own two feet. That, that is such a powerful statement that regardless of how you grow up, you've got, you've got to eventually take responsibility for your own life and figure it out how you want to live. Uh, good or bad dad that I hope our listeners hear that because that is a powerful statement. So, yeah, so the encouraging thing that I learned was the distance between me and what I went through and from like someone like Mark and his amazement of his father, what he went through is not as far apart as we think, is that that we are closer than we realize. And in that, for me, 
I, I have such hope because I felt like I am a million miles away in a pit that no one can pull me out of. And when I realize I'm next door to the godliest family ever with the same struggles in some ways, but then the same hope and the same, it, it, it was so encouraging for me and uh, to feel like I'm not alone and that there, there's, there's nothing impossible. And there's, and, and, um, you know, it's, I'll tell you what, like, you know, on the flip side of that, my struggle as a parent and as a father is, man, when I, when I encountered Jesus, it was like discovering fire. Like the wheel just got invented because of what I came from. And so I genuinely wanted to charge hell with a water pistol. It was so alive. And, and Mark, I know we've had these conversations before early on, but I'm like, what happens when you you try to do your job and your kids live under grace and identity and, 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 a, and, a, and hopefully a healthy family to where to them, they're like, yeah, Jesus is pretty cool. He's been around, you know, it's like we, they kind of get fat at the table, if you will. Yeah. They don't, they start, don't experience the deficit. Right. I'm like, and I, and I tell my wife, Shannon, I'm like, man, I just, I, I always, I wonder what will it be? that ignites them, you know, that, that it, not that there has to be that moment, but for me, it's all I know is that, man, it, it was dark and then it was light. And my kids are just kind of have the dimmer switch on to where we can see and it's fine. And it's comfortable. And I'm like, you know, something will take place. Something will happen to where they, my kids love Jesus. I don't doubt that, but it's like a, it's just like, it's like having a refrigerator. I don't know any different. It's just the convenience. And I always wondered like, man, what you know it's like it's another it's kind of that thing they're gonna have therapy because if we try to do our job and try to be godly parents and try to create a safe environment which i wouldn't trade for the world i'm like man where is it when do they is there a does it when does it click like when do you know i don't know this is that's like a that's that's literally a conversation i had just last night with someone that's uh you know as a parent it's like well that's one of the things that's one of the things i always say to at the beginning of my parenting seminars, my real world parent seminars, I always say, look, you're going to screw your kids up. And most of it's going to be from trying to do the right thing. Yep. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like most evil parents are in jail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, well, Mark, you're one of the first ones they ever told me, or you told someone, and maybe I was just standing by and heard it, but it was kind of like, Hey, if you worry, if you're a good parent or not, you're probably a pretty good parent. And uh, it's it's like the ones that just don't care and just not existent. But man, like if you stay up at night going, did I do it right? That's a pretty good move. That's a good sign that you're at least trying to get it right, you know? But, so Bart, how, you know, you, you want now, you have, uh, I can't remember last time I was with you, uh, you had five children. I still have five. <laughs> okay. Yes. All right. All right. I was turned 18 two days ago. I know. I never know. It's like, sometimes I'm like, wait a minute, where did all these other kids come from? It's like, oh, yes. they're neighbor yeah. kids. Okay. I just thought maybe you're still working. <laughs> yeah. Uh, still working. <laughs> how has, uh, <laughs> you got to keep writing those songs, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell me how has, you know, like, you know, obviously the father wound doesn't go away and you're right. I mean, it's very interesting as I've been working through the better man thing, even dealing with, you know, and you talked about my dad and my dad and I have, do have a great relationship, but there's still wounds there. Um, sure. Fathers have the power to just wound us in, in amazing ways and indelible ways. How has your father still, how do those wounds still affect you today? What are those battles you're still fighting? And then what, how is that experience informing you as a father now? Uh, yeah. And I'll, it, before I answer that, the one thing I'll say about what you just said about, you know, there's still wounds. I think that a lot of people wrestle with 
telling themselves, well, it's not as bad as other people. And so they tend to keep their mouth shut or not address. My wife is that way. Amazing parents. But like you said, there's still wounds. But she ends up being in an unhealthier place than me at times because it seems petty compared to the abusive dad. And so they don't address them and it just festers and eats at them to where they end up in a place just as bad as far as trying to manage it and everything. That's anyway, side note. Well, uh, that's an important point because um, I will say that when I started working with Robert and we started talking about the father wound thing, I'd never asked myself, what are my father wounds? And because what you just said, I've always thought, well, I didn't have it that bad or whatever. And it was the first time that I ever stopped and looked at that and, um, and addressed some of those things. And it is true. It is easy to say, well, I've got it better than most. And if you don't really reflect on that, you can't grow beyond it and really lean into Jesus for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, I think, I think when Mark, first time you ever introduced me to Barna, I'm going to get it wrong, but he was talking about something about how at the time he's like, you know, Marilyn Manson may look like an obvious evil to the church, but it's the, the slightly to one side of the other theology and things that are eating at us that we just let slide because it doesn't seem like a big deal or that, you know, or, or maybe scripture look at weird or whatever. He goes, that's the stuff that's going to take us down. We can see the obvious things and it's the same with this. It's like, I can point out the abusive father and deal with that. But, you know, someone like you, Mark, who's like, man, my dad was pretty great, pretty awesome. Those wounds aren't a big deal compared to him. So I'm just going to move on. And all of a sudden it's like, holy cow, where did this come from? Anyway, yeah, it's it's very, yeah, it's under the radar, I guess is a good way of putting it. And that's, and that's why it's so important to always be uh, with other men processing life. Because yep. a lot of these awarenesses, just like you sitting around with those peers around the campfire talking, you get these new kind of revelations about where you are, where they are, and what all that means. And that's the that's how the community of men help continually redeem us with Jesus through life. And without them, we end up in an echo chamber just talking to ourselves and that usually becomes the devil's workshop. Yeah, no question. And that's, you asked about like, how did this, how has this played out on how I'm a father and now? And uh, I'll tell you, like it, it probably in the last five years is when, um, like I realized how, how important and how vital confession is because maybe I live thinking, well, Jesus needs me to confess my sins, do this kind of stuff. And I'm like, you know what? Jesus doesn't need me to confess anything. It's I desperately need to confess mm. this. And what I mean by that is, I mean, literally speaking it out loud to people. Yeah. And, it, and, 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 and that's just at least where I am now is like, for me, confession is sitting with those men and saying this out loud. Like, like from this point on, I am not dealing with this alone. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and I'm not sure if that's exactly what Christ meant, but man, that's what I take. Is oh, that it's like I think it, that's what James says. You know, we're to confess yeah. our sins to one another. I know in our Better Man curriculum that uh, we've created that we take men through. Early on, we have men do a special session uh, outside the actual group meetings together, where they can just tell each other their life story. Yeah. And one of the things we've discovered is how few men have ever looked back and told their story, and yet when they begin to tell it, they hardly can stop. Because yeah. they're learning things about themselves in the company of other men 
that they've never even admitted to themselves, much less to anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. My grandmother would tell me that she goes, you know, I didn't get it then, obviously, but she's like, every time you confess, you're releasing part of your burden. And I always thought she meant to Jesus. And in a way she did. But at the same time, I never thought of it as just me talking to the two of you right now is like letting air out of the tank, like releasing this in a way. And it's incredibly therapeutic. And uh, yeah, I've never met anyone who walked away from doing something like this going, man, I feel worse. Yeah. You know, it's, like, it's, like a girl, it's like a girl saying she needs a good cry. But, uh, yeah. But, uh, Guys need yeah. a good confession. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Yes. And, and so that, but as far as my dad's impact on me as a parent, sorry, I didn't mean to get away from that. The biggest, the biggest things that I've noticed is as a, as a parent, uh, the pendulum definitely would has swung the other way to where I struggle with disciplining my kids at all. Um, that I don't want, you know, I, like literally I live as if there's some monster inside of me that I haven't met yet just because I'm his son. I'm not there anymore. Let's take it back. I'm not there anymore. That's where I spent most of, you know, probably until about seven years ago um, when just kind of went through a, you know, just a transformation of just understanding who I actually am in Christ and, um, and anyway, and so, yeah, that, that's been the biggest thing is like, you know, when my kids get in trouble, it's like, I would let everything slide and it would drive my wife crazy. She's like, hello, and you're like, help me out here, you know? And, and I always thought that, man, if I, if I discipline at all, if I tell them something, I'm afraid I'm going to cross the line that I can't come back. Like, it, you know, and, and like, it's a part of me. And that was the biggest struggle. I believed it was my identity. It was a part of me. And, um, and, and so that, that was a big struggle. And the other one was just intimacy and uh, my mom leaving, not other than my grandmother, not really having a lot of females in my life. As far as I didn't have any sisters, my mom wasn't there. My grandmother did everything she could, but didn't live with us until the last couple of years. And really not knowing how to treat, you know, treat a lady mm. and, uh, and just, and not in the things that I guess people take for granted. I just didn't know. And, and learning to be sensitive, learning what intimacy is and, sharing my feelings and stuff like that. And the stuff that might, you know, my, I, I see those parts of my dad that drive me crazy to where it's very easy just to sit in a chair and like, you're just a bear that doesn't move and, yeah. and not engage with your kids because no one ever engaged with me. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, those are a couple of ways that it's, it's definitely, you know, it rears its ugly head at times. And I, I, I haven't gotten it right, but I'm definitely better than what I was. Well, and being aware of it is, the biggest victory, because if you're aware of it, you'll have that, the Spirit of God constantly using that awareness to try to move you off that couch into action. And right. uh, But but without that, you're just, you're clueless. And that's where a lot of men find themselves who don't have that redemptive uh, moment and don't have that community of men that are sharpening them uh, on a regular basis. We We just tend to fall back into this passive, let life come to us. And uh, that's ruinous for a man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Bart, thank you so much. This, this has been really powerful just to, one, have you trust us with your story today. And uh, I know you've shared it broadly, but um, but to hear you, you talk about it in this context. And I just think about th- those last words about how much that father wound can affect us today if we don't reflect on it and act on it. 
And um, God wants to make us so much more than we, we presently are for our benefit and our, not to make us feel bad, not because we're doing less, but because we enjoy life when we're really fully uh, alive. And so being able to experience some healing from these things uh, is really powerful in our it experience is. of following Jesus as men. So, and the more we come alive, man, the more we give life to others. Man, I'll tell you a, a moment real quick that, that of, of like being set free, so to speak, and bless the doctor's heart. He has no idea. But um, uh, when I was a newlywed, um, you know, I wrestled with my dad died when he was 48. Uh, I'm 47. And my, my grandfather died when he was 44. And, um, and of both of cancer. And so ever since my dad died, it's, I've lived with like thinking that I'm on borrowed time, even though we all are technically, but you know what I mean? Like the time's coming. My brother, who's now 50, who's not in the same place I am really like it's struggling, you know, like he's in overtime and, uh, kind of like Lieutenant Dan Forrest Gump, who's like, I'm meant to stay on this battlefield and not go home. Well, anyway, so I'll never forget. I went to a doctor cause I had a cold or something. The doctor knew my family. I did not know him. Um, and, but he's, he was my in-laws doctor and I guess they had kind of told him stuff. And I went in to get, he was the only one available. I went in to get like, you know, a Z pack or something. And he's sitting there looking at stuff. He's okay. Okay. I'll do this. And then he goes, it's not hereditary. And I was like, I'm sorry. And he was like, it's not hereditary. I was like, what are you talking about? He said, pancreatic cancer is one of the few cancers that are, is not hereditary. And he goes, so I hope you sleep better tonight. I didn't know. And I, and that's all he said. And I, and everything in me locked up and, um, and he left the room and man, I just, I fell apart. Like I'm doing it now. And, um, and, and it wasn't that it was so not about the cancer, but him saying that was that if God himself just said, everything that you think is in you is not, and you are not your father. And, um, and it was just, that's the only, that I could, comp- I could, I could, I feel like I could physically grab it when he said that everything that I was feeling and just call it cancer or whatever. But for him to say, you you don't, you don't have to live the same life. You know, it's not, you, you know, I don't know. It just, it, it, it set me free on such a, a deeper level than he'll ever know. And, um, and so it's like, that was one of those moments where I called my wife and I was like, I couldn't even drive. I, I was, I was just a mess. And I kept telling her, I was like, I kept saying, he says the cancer's not hereditary, like good news. She goes, oh, okay. And I didn't know, I didn't realize it's a big deal. And I was like, but it's just so much more. Like he he might as well just told me, you don't have his temper. You're not going to treat your kids the same way. You're going to be a better husband. I mean, it was like, I took so much out of that. But, uh, you know, and that just goes back to, you know, saying something encouraging to people that hear this is that, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, God's bigger than this and you're not that person. and and uh, they may do their best to try to tear this down, but it's something that 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 God sees as precious and worth it. And and um uh, and yeah, it was just like moments like that 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 kind of I was already set free, but made me kind of help me realize it in the mm. process. Mm. Yeah, it becomes a spiritual message, not just a medical message. It's like oh, God absolutely. is God is reaching in and giving you a gift that uh, even transcended even what the doctor was thinking, but you received it spiritually the way it was meant to be given. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just sitting there thinking about, you know, all the talk in the scriptures about being a new creation. 
and this idea oh, of the, yeah. the old things are passing away and the, the new things can come in and the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. It's spiritual, it's physical, it's uh, it, it's amazing. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you shared that story. <laughs> that was yeah, a great, absolutely. That was a great... Uh, and, 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 and you know, wow. you know I, again, I, I think of moments in my own life where people have said things and they're, what they're saying literally is true, but it comes packaged with the Spirit of God as a bigger message, and your heart hears it. Yeah, and yeah. Um, that's what I—that's what I was experiencing as you were telling that—that yeah. that God gave yeah. you the bigger message. Yeah, and that's and that's—I mean, gosh, that's my lot in life now. Is like as far as ministry goes, is that you know, I just I I for years I was the person that would sing and talk about being set free, but it's as it like, gosh, I've literally written songs about it where it's like, you know, the, 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 the door to my jail cell is swung is blown wide open. But for some reason, like an abused pet, I won't come out. I just, I, I choose to stay there. I'm free, but I won't come out. And it's like, I feel like I, I encounter so many people that the door's wide open, but they just won't step out. They won't Mm. come out because of what they've gone through. Right. And, um, and it's like, and it's, you know, it's, and I told my wife, I was like, I don't even know if I'm, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's one thing to set people free, but it's another thing when believers are still tied up and in bondage and it's like, and you're yelling, you're free, just 10 more steps, just come out. Yeah. And they know, and they can't. And I said, that's the people that I hurt for and I long for. And, and uh, cause I was that for, I mean, until literally seven, maybe eight years ago, that was me. You know, I was successful in ministry and music, but I wouldn't come out of my cell. Mm. And, uh, and so that's, that's, that's what stirs me more than anything when it comes to people that, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's not just non-believers, man. It, I'm sure most of this podcast would go to people mm-hmm. that have walked in the doors of a church a million times, but somehow they still feel like they're a prisoner. And I, I can't help but think that there are many listeners who are locked in on a couple of statements you made, and it's become a spiritual message from God to them, even bigger than what you said. And uh, hopefully it'll help set them free as well. Yeah, I hope so, absolutely. Bart, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Thank you. For all of you who are listening, uh, this is the Better Man Podcast. And uh, if you want to find out more, go to betterman.com. Hey, this is Mark Matlock with the Better Man Podcast. I just want to remind you to leave a review and subscribe to the Better Man Podcast on whatever platform you're listening from. If you're a church or organization leader interested in bringing a Better Man 10-week event to your community, go to betterman.com for information.